Hey, before we get things going, a quick favor for you. We've got a survey for listeners of the Energy Gang and the Interchange. It's right there in the show notes, and it'll just take you a few minutes. It is anonymous, and it helps us learn more about who our audience is so we can serve up more relevant content. And to be totally transparent, it helps us find the right advertisers for this show as well. So pick up the device you're listening on and tap that link right there in the show notes to fill out the survey, and uh, you'll qualify for a swag giveaway too. So... Uh, some some lucky listeners will get some Energy Gang gear. Thank you so much. And a thanks goes to our sponsor, SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading solar inverter supplier by volume in the world and is now a leading supplier across the Americas. It's got more than 3 gigawatts shipped in the past two years alone. SunGrow inverters are the backbone of some of the most innovative projects in the world, from floating PV to big projects for tech companies like Apple. Find out more at sungrowpower.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor with GTM. I'm coming to you from Boston. Welcome. The world's fifth largest economy looked a little more like a developing country last week as PG&E cut power to millions of people in Northern California. We knew this was coming. The growing safety and financial risk of wildfires in the state mean mass power outages will become more common. But in this case, PG&E is getting slammed for the way it handled things. We'll dig into the scope, the fallout, and the solutions. Then, Dyson made a big business out of selling $400 hair dryers and $500 vacuum cleaners, but it couldn't make a high-end electric car work. We'll talk about why Dyson wrote off its EV plans just a couple years after writing off one of its big battery investments. Finally, the Trump administration lifts a tariff exemption on bifacial solar panels. So, what are these two-sided solar modules exactly, and why are they becoming so popular now? Why have one side when you can have two? That's what I say. And that's why I keep two of my favorite pundits by my side every week. In the fine city of Washington, D.C. is Catherine Hamilton. She's chair of 38 North Solutions. Hey, Catherine, how are you? I am so ready for the show. And by the show, I mean the World Series, baby. So this is the first time the Washington Nationals have ever made it that far in the playoffs or to the World Series, right? Absolutely. Exciting times for you. What about impeachment? Is that sucking up all the air in Washington outside of the ballpark? Yeah, so I think everybody is kind of breathing into a paper bag at this point, but uh, I'm trying to keep <laughs> my eyes focused on energy. In Bethesda, Maryland, is Jigger Shaw. He's the president of Generate Capital. Jigger is on a mission to impeach the leadership at his utility Pepco. <laughs> Actually, funny enough, I've repaired my relationship with Pepco. It's PG&E that's like, you know, the problem. <laughs> the fight continues, though. It just it moves onward. So you have a solar battery system. Um, I'm curious, as we, we think about the PG&E outages, what loads could your system pick up in an extended outage and how long would it last? So it picks up all of the kitchen loads and then the sump pump mainly, and then like a few lights uh, around the house. Well, uh, a lot more people are asking the same question in California. After 2 million people in PG&E territory had their power disconnected as part of this thing called the public safety power shutoff. High winds were creating a strong wildfire risk, and PG&E, which is already facing tens of billions of dollars in liabilities from last year's fires, took no chances. It cut power to 700,000 points of connection at homes and businesses. The shutoffs worked, right? There were no major wildfires in high-risk areas, but nearly everyone is blasting the way PG&E handled the situation, and that's partly what we're going to talk about. So first, a quick disclosure. 
that we've mentioned on this show in the past. PG&E has been a sponsor of both this podcast and The Interchange, our other show at GTM. Our sponsors have no impact on the editorial content of this show, so just please know that um, as we have these conversations. They are independent from any sponsor messaging. So, Catherine, what happened here? What was the PG&E plan to shut off power, and how did it get rolled out? Yeah, so as you said, they had a decision to make. Should we turn power off preemptively where we think there are specific hotspots? And there are maps you can look at to see where the potential wildfire hotspots are. Um, and do we do this prevent preemptively? And they have done this in the past, but in much smaller swaths, so tens of thousands of customers as opposed to hundreds of thousands. And because of the weather reports for wind and heat, they really could see a lot more of a hotspot and decided to turn off, as you said, you know, almost 2 million people in total impacted, but 700,000 or so turned off. And it was kind of like this per- perfect storm, so to speak, of not only was the power out, but their call centers were flooded and their website kept crashing. So there wasn't an ability for people to get information about what was going on. And it was just this confluence of events that really came out uh, as a very poor performance on their part. Although I am hearing also, and this is not confirmed by PG&E, but I'm just hearing through the grapevine that there are upwards of 50 conductors that would have failed and sparked fires if they had not turned the power off because the wind was so strong. So um, so they were pre- trying to prevent loss of life, which they were able to do much more successfully, certainly, than they had um, with other fires, most notably campfire. Well, we can talk about PG&E's uh, mismanagement over the years and mismanagement of this event, but this is definitely a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. I mean, PG&E has a lot of equipment that is aging, that is presenting a severe wildfire risk, and it just has to de-energize many of these lines in high-risk areas. Um, and when you know it, you have a counterfactual, right? You don't necessarily know if they're going to cause wildfires, but when the wildfires don't happen, we can assume that the the shutoff worked. But everyone's super angry that they lost power for days, uh, and it hit so many people. And you have you know uh, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars of you know lost revenue for small businesses. Um, People can't go to school. Like, it's a real problem, and PG&E is taking the brunt of that criticism. So it's going to be a problem no matter what, even if they do this right. The problem is, they, it sounds like they did it pretty wrong. Um, we've known this has been coming for a while. We've, we've, they've been saying to regulators, hey, we're going to have to shut off the power. But still, they mismanaged this power shutoff because of poor communication, because they couldn't handle the traffic on their website. So, Jigger, what did PG&E do wrong here, even though we knew an event like this was coming at some point? So I was actually in California when the event started. And as an employer of, you know, 60 people plus who are coming from, you know, Marin County, San Francisco, Oakland, all sorts of places, right? We didn't actually have any idea, you know, who was coming to work, when they were coming to work, what childcare situations were going to be, whether the schools were going to be open or not, right? And so, so some of our employees got the word that they were going to lose power two hours before it happened, right? And they were checking. Our employees are pretty smart. So they were checking online. They were trying to figure out. The resolution of the JPEGs that they were using was so weak that when you zoomed in, you couldn't tell whether your house was on this side of the map or that side of the map. 
And so I think what PG&E did wrong on the communication side is that they just didn't give people notice. And we've got families who have, you know, like kids who need extra help. And so, you know, like there was no really good data as to where do you take your kids if they need emergency generators or if they need equipment. Like if like if you're an elderly person who's on a CPAP, for instance, like, you know, that's something that you plug in to help you sleep at night to make sure you don't die in the middle of your sleep. Like, where do you go for that? And some of the emergency shelters said, well, we're only open until 11 p.m. and then we're shutting down. You're like, what are you talking about? That's not how this works. And so it's part, I mean, the problem I would say with PG&E is that they just didn't really do a major dry run. And so when this occurred and they, and they expanded the territory so much that everyone was trying to call in. I mean, you know, one of our colleagues at Bloomberg, um, you know, basically said that that she had to file reports and whatnot on her cell phone. And so all of the cell phone towers were completely jammed because, um, you know, no one's routers at home on the Internet stuff worked. And so so the economy really did grind to a halt. So that like the area that we know as Silicon Valley that has all of this capacity didn't have the capacity we thought it did. This is what feels so frustrating and infuriating. In 2012, when we have massive outages along the eastern seaboard and into the Midwest from Hurricane Sandy, many of the problems were communication problems. Uh, the utilities were not able to communicate where outages were, how when they were coming, when the power would be coming back on to customers. Customers waited days and days or weeks without really much word from the utility. The utility had poor maps. There was just a, a lack of information available. And one of the big things that came out of the post-Sandy world was utilities said, we're going to get a lot better at giving this information to our customers. And many of the utilities that were impacted by Sandy did, in fact, um, put new systems into place. And I remember two years after Sandy, I wrote this ebook about how resiliency was becoming more important for utility planning. And one of the core components was just simply information gathering and dissemination. And it's clear now, seven years later, even though we have a planned event and we've known that this is coming, that a utility like PG&E still can't get its act together on basic information dissemination, we haven't come nearly far enough. And I think this is what's most infuriating about this situation is that we are in a new world. We've known that this world is emerging and getting scarier. And still, the basics of what you need to do in a situation like this haven't been covered. Yeah, Stephen, I would say it's not just communications protocol, and it's even before Sandy. So about a dozen years ago, San Diego Gas and Electric was facing the same issue with wildfires. And they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make our system much more modular so that we will be able to isolate lines and only cut a few people rather than hundreds of thousands of people. Now, they have a much smaller service territory, certainly by orders of magnitude than PG&E, and yet they were able to do it and adjust. And that was 12 years ago. And PG&E has known this is going to happen, has been, it's been increasing more and more. And at this point, you know, they have to do two things. One is to make sure their communication systems work, certainly, and have protocol. But they also need to, I mean, this is going to have to require a lot of collective action to get people to help them make their system more modular so that when they cut power, because they're going to have to do that, they can't just let wildfires start. When they cut power, they will be able to isolate 
communities rather than having enormous swaths of the state out? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, just going back to the previous thought from you, Stephen, um, it's worse than you're imagining, right? Because think about how many people live paycheck to paycheck. So if if you have power outages for four or five days, those people don't go to work, right? And so they're not making money. They can't pay rent because they just lost one-sixth of their income for the month. And in general, Tom Hoff did some extraordinary work on this after the 2003 uh, New York City blackouts or 2002. And, um, and he basically looked at tax revenue from the, govern- the government by SIC code. And he was saying the government should actually strengthen um, certain parts of the economy to make sure that the tax revenue is actually being generated, right? Because the government loses all this tax revenue for being down for five days, right? And so I just think that there's a, an assumption that everyone has slack in the system. And that slack is not there. Pretty much everyone is running super tight. And um, if they don't get income for six days, a lot of small businesses go out of business. Their landlords are not going to you know, say, well, you don't have to pay the rent this month. So how long are people going to be able to tolerate this? Energy geeks like us have been talking about this for a while. So in energy circles, we've known that these public safety power shutoffs are coming, but it doesn't become real for people until it actually happens. And you saw a lot of customers that were caught off guard, people who were totally unprepared for it, and the lack of communication made things even worse. And this has real-world impacts. It has a financial impact that can be devastating for some people, as you, you said, Jigger. So how long are people going to be tolerating this if we see a few times a year these mass power shutoffs that could last days, if not over a week? Yeah. And they're looking at it could be 15 or more a year, two to five days each. So this is Im- enormously impactful for the entire California economy and all these businesses and people that Jigger mentioned. And I think what PG&E is saying is we have a plan for dealing with this. But their plan for resilience may not actually be what customers and communities want for resilience. So I think there's going to be um, there's going to be a need to bring everybody together or you are going to have mass defection because it's not OK for the for your power company to just shut you off at will. Yeah, I, I think that when you take this to the logical extreme, right, remember, you start with the, you know, Rahm Emanuel you know, quote around, you know, never waste a crisis. But when you think about all the companies that we're talking about, whether it's microgrid companies or even CCAs, right? Um, you've got that new company Uplight, right? Which is a merger of five different companies. You now have a whole bunch of companies who have solutions, but haven't had really the amount of customer uptake that one would want to see. And now, I mean, there's a lot of customers interested in the solutions that people are offering them. And so you're going to see a lot more response to, you know, basic advertising and that kind of stuff. But I think where this might end up going eventually is, is communities saying, we want, to be, we want to be taken off of PG&E. Like, you know, we just want to be able to control ourselves. And people are going to say, well, that's not allowed under the monopoly statute. And I think the governor is going to have to make a decision as to whether he forces the CPUC to create an exemption for those communities or neighborhoods, right? You can imagine new home construction starting next year in California is required to have solar on every single home. 
You could imagine Lennar and a lot of these other home builders saying, you know what, we want our entire community to be a microgrid off grid and we're building it from scratch anyway. So it's pretty easy to do. And in fact, that feature is why we can charge an extra 20,000 bucks for our house. So this will, of course, accelerate some of those trends. But there's a lot of debate about what the short term policy implications are. And Governor Gavin Newsom came out and said, PG&E should offer rebates to everybody who is impacted. And energy experts uh, were very critical of that approach, saying, um, why are you thinking about these short-term penalties when you should be encouraging them to take that money and invest it into hardening infrastructure and getting more you know, microgrids and distributed energy systems developed to improve resilience? Uh, thoughts on Governor Newsom's response there and whether it makes sense to be pushing for these penalty rebates or, or, or if not, where should the money be spent? Well, look, I mean, politics is politics. I think the notion that, <laughs> right. like, you know, the governor isn't going to say to people, look, you lost $200 of food in your refrigerator and freezer and that the utility is not going to pay for it. Like, of course, the util- the governor is going to come on the side of people who've lost 200 bucks of food or other perishables uh, during the crisis. So, like, I, you know, I don't know that I want to get into the small ball politics of what to do with 200 bucks. I think the bigger thing is whether the governor actually has a plan, you know, a la like the BP horizon sort of oil spill, because that's where we are, right? I mean, at the end of the day, like this is untenable. You can't keep shutting off power. And if the governor's office says, well, you know, it would prevent all these wildfires. We could have had 50 wildfires. Look at all this data that we show. I'm 100% sure that Gavin Newsom won't get reelected. And so like, so that's what he's worried about is he's saying, Like, how do I show that I have real leadership here? How do I bring in a czar into my government that says, I'm on top of PG&E and I'm writing them every single day to reassure people that this is getting fixed? Well, and remember, right now, PG&E had filed for reorganization through bankruptcy. And so the court is, you know, having to decide on their reorganization plan. And yet at the same time, the court encouraged the bondholders to also file a plan. So there are going to be a couple of different plans out there that they're going to be looking at. And in the end, the California Public Utilities Commission, um, which right now, President um, Mary Bell Batcher is saying she is very, very aligned with the governor on his approach too, where the buck stops there. The CPUC has to make the decision in the end as to what the plan is going to be for PG&E. And I think it is not a foregone conclusion that PG&E survives. What is the breaking point here then? This situation showed just how fragile everything is in California. The power shutoffs were communicated in a disastrous way. People were not clear on why exactly it was happening uh, PG&E is trying to do better, but they clearly are unequipped to, to 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 do the scope of these. They are clearly unequipped to manage the scope of these outages. And of course, as you mentioned, Jigger, there's a political price to be paid. If this keeps happening, then it will feed into the state house. It will feed into the boardroom at PG&E. So I guess the question is, what is the breaking point? Is it going to come sooner than we expected? And what are the consequences? Well, the breaking point are cities. The breaking point are mayors. I think this fallacy that we have an electric monopoly is is the problem, right? Like if you're a mayor of a town, the vast majority of mayors in California own their own water utility, whether they have 14,000 residents or whether they have 400,000 residents. The water utility can easily deploy 
all of this stuff, solar plus, you know, like battery storage plus energy efficiency plus electric vehicles. Remember, you know, Nissan has already approved all of their vehicles for vehicle to grid. I wouldn't be surprised if you had a big spike in Nissan Leaf sales, right? But if the water utility of these mayors wants to take over the electric grid without basically violating the monopoly statute, then PG&E gets hollowed out from the inside out, right? And at some point, like that's how the breaking point occurs is when people don't trust that someone else is going to take care of it, they start doing the hard stuff internally to be able to make themselves more resilient. And that's the beginning of the end. And also, I would just say I work with coalitions and companies every single day who we are fighting just for the right to do business in California. And we have the solutions that we can deploy very easily. And the California Public Utility Commission has consistently thought microgrids are, you know, this is all nascent technology. We'll get to it eventually. Well, you know, they're talking about it now. So the commission and all of the structures of government in California need to actually allow innovators to come in and do their jobs and offer solutions. And that will help PG&E and that will help their system and their consumers. And I would say they have a model that they deployed through SGIP, which is the Self-Generation Incentive Program, that they allowed low-income consumers to begin to participate in. And they know that this program works. And low-income is only a small slice of who's impacted there. But they could massively increase that program. They could allow many more participants. They could do public-private partnerships and things like green banks to drive investment. But they need to let those who want to come in and innovate do that. Well, that is the the dirty little secret of California, right, is that in response to the energy crisis of the early 2000s, California has become harder to innovate within, not easier to innovate within. And so to the extent that your program is chosen, like the California Solar Initiative or the SCHIP program within batteries, then you're in the clear. But to the extent that you have a good idea that's not yet contemplated, you do some weird, you know, sort of process through the California Energy Commission, which is all, you know, sort of one-off pilots. And, you know, we've railed against this for a long time on the podcast, but I do think that California now has to see that they are not actually this bastion of innovation in terms of deployment, where they might be a bastion of innovation in terms of companies and solutions. Well, and if people don't like it, they can take the old Jigger Shaw advice and pack up their car and move to a different state, right, Jigger? Well, you know, Reno is nice this time of year. (laughs) Well, what a mess. More of a mess than I even imagined. Definitely shaping up to be one of the biggest and most consequential stories of the year. So stay tuned on this one. We're going to press the pause button here for just a moment and talk about our sponsor, SunGrow. SunGrow is just rapidly growing around the world. It has 87 gigawatts of inverters deployed across the globe. And in the U.S., it's growing rapidly as well. It's working with some of the largest companies that are on the cutting edge of renewable procurement. That includes Apple. When Apple announced its operations were powered by 100% renewable energy in 2018, CEO Tim Cook said, we got to do better. We can do even more. And they said they were committed to pushing the envelope on forward-looking uses of renewable energy. And that includes the 251-megawatt Tecran 2 facility in Boulder, Nevada. Uh, It's developed by Swinterton Renewables, and it's using SunGrow inverters and trackers from NextTracker and cutting-edge bifacial modules. You're going to hear us talk about bifacial modules later in the show. And as part of the project, 5 megawatts is available for NV Energy 
energy customers to subscribe to so they can take part in the project as well. SunGrow isn't just innovating when it comes to bifacial solar panels. The company is also heavily invested with energy storage, and its inverters are integrated into 200 megawatt hours of storage projects across the U.S. Find out more at sungrowpower.com. Catherine, what's the most you've ever spent on a desk lamp? Oh, gosh. Probably like 30 bucks from Target. Would you buy one for $500? No. <laughs> well, Dyson has one for 500 That sounds ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I don't shop at Dyson, and I get all of my vacuum cleaners from Craigslist. <laughs> Jigger, what's the most you've ever spent on a vacuum? So I did end up spending the $700 at the end for the Dyson... I think the version eight hand vac. And I, I have to say it's the best purchase I've ever made. I am notoriously cheap when it comes to these kinds of things. And so we've always had like hand-me-downs and all sorts of other stuff. But this thing is extraordinary. You know, like you can lift it in your hand. It's really easy to just like put back on the wall mount. And like I actually vacuum five times more than I did before. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure everyone in the house appreciates that. So the reason why Dyson products are so expensive is because it puts a ton of R&D money behind these products, and it doesn't skimp on design. They look pretty sleek. The batteries last for a long time. They're highly functional. Up for debate about whether it's worth the money, but, you know, that's a lot of people love them. Um, the company is famous for putting millions of dollars into R&D, tens of millions of dollars into R&D, to make quiet, cordless hair dryers and vacuums and air purifiers. Um, and until October 10th, it had plans to do the same for a high-end electric car, a car that was potentially going to cost $100,000. That's according to reports. But the company couldn't really get the project moving, and it finally gave up. So turns out designing household appliances isn't exactly the same thing as making a car. Jigger, were you ever as much a believer in Dyson's attempt to make an electric car as you were in that vacuum cleaner that you bought. No, I had actually forgotten that they even were talking about making a car. So <laughs> it was, it, it clearly did not leave an indelible mark on me. Um, but I'm not surprised. I mean, the thing about people like Richard Branson or James Dyson or some of these other people is that they actually care about making a profit. Like when you think about, you know, standard business school, um, you know, 101, and when you look at stuff and you say, oh, you know, gross margins of X and operating margins of Y and return on equity and all these other terms, like James Dyson actually cares about that stuff. And so I think he just got swept up in the hoopla. And in general, I think he bought the battery technology because he was um, needing it for his core products and vacuums and hair dryers and other things. And so, you know, I think he said, oh, let's do an electric car. I can do it better than everybody else. And then when he realized that the the world's largest automakers make like on an average 11% gross margins, 1.8% net margins, where his net margins are 20%, at some point you're like, why am I losing money on purpose? Well, it sounds like they didn't even get to that point, like that that the teams were understaffed. They were way behind schedule. They were so early stage that... 
Dyson just gave up pretty early. But you know what? Good for James Dyson. I mean, he owns the whole company. He's putting 2.5 billion pounds into investing in new technologies like sensors and, you know, vision and solid state batteries and robotics and artificial intelligence. And like, this is just one investment. And even if it didn't pan out, they were behind schedule. They didn't do it right. Like, good for him for making the attempt. Why not? Yeah, and some of those new technology innovations could then go into his products or into future cars from other companies. Right. And the battery innovations are where they thought they had an advantage. So I believe it was in 2015, they bought this company called Sakti 3, solid state uh, battery company that ultimately... There were a lot of questions about whether the technology performed like the uh, inventor said it did. And they actually wrote down the patents on that acquisition in 2017. So they just decided, like, the battery doesn't work like we thought it did. And they're focusing on a different solid state battery technology. But still, it seems like although they're not going to be designing the drivetrain and building a car, they're still focused on better batteries. And we very well may see some interesting research out of Dyson on that front. Yeah, I think that this is very similar to Apple and the fact that they sort of abandoned their car efforts. And I think they're now just doing self-driving cars. And I, look, I just think that the car business is actually a terrible business. It is it is a business where you sell a lot of units and the revenues are so large. You're making three, four, five hundred billion dollars of revenue a year but you make one and a half percent. And if you're Apple and you're like, we make like 20% profits on our iPhone. Why are we like averaging down our profit margin as a company just to get into cars? Like we need to just be in the software and we need to license that to like VW and make 20% margins on that. And so I don't begrudge these people for, you know, taking a hard look at the auto industry and then saying, that's not a great industry to be in. Well, if you want to learn more about the struggles within Dyson and like how their R&D efforts worked in this case and, and how that might have hindered the project. Read the Bloomberg piece that we'll link to. It's from Giles Turner and, and Peter Robeson. They did a great job of outlining um, the history and the, the failure of Dyson's electric car efforts. I, I guess the big question is, how does this fit into what was happening around the 2015-2017 time frame, which brought a ton of electric vehicle development, much of which we haven't seen shake out within tech companies. So we had Apple, Uber, uh, you know, a few other companies. You can remind me which what, what other ones there were. They were all preparing to build EVs, and we haven't really seen anything interesting materialize. Well, this is why, you know, like I see the world as glass half empty most of the time on this stuff, and you'd be skeptical, right? The reason why everyone was looking at doing electric vehicles is remember like Elon Musk went from like $40 a share to $200 a share. Right. And people are like, Oh my God, like I could become worth way more than the 4 billion I'm already worth if I get into electric vehicles. And so everyone's like, well, this is great. If I could put $200 million to work and suddenly become $10 billion richer, why wouldn't I do that? Right. And then, then the reality sets in like this stuff is actually super hard and it's not that easy. And, you know, and, and, and things shake out. Like, I mean, I don't think Uber and Lyft believe anymore in autonomous vehicles. I think both of them now recognize that it's so far away as to not have any influence on their current stock price. Um, and the same thing, WeWork has now been destroyed in their entire like virtual business model. And, you know, I think that also the pr ethereal profits that people thought were there in, in uh, electric vehicles turned out to be, you know, 
far harder to find than uh, even people thought in 2015. Well, we're certainly reckoning with a lot of assumptions from these tech companies that were so prevalent a couple of years ago. Well, Uber is going to start testing self-driving cars uh, next month in Dallas. So they are continuing on that technology pathway, but they're essentially a drive surface. They're, and when you look at Apple, and I believe that timeline of 2015-17 was when Jigger was really ramping up his um, Apple's going to buy Tesla narrative. <laughs> and I still I, think and it's going to happen. <laughs> um, but so, I mean, I actually think Apple may still have a car. They're so secretive about everything. But this is much more a, an integration piece for them because they have all of this technology, this system technology and software. Um, they did get an autonomous testing permit at the California Department of Motor Vehicles. So they are doing a lot of testing. And I mean, this they're a technology company that could do a lot of the integration piece that folks like Tesla are, you know, building on the hardware end. So I still think they could do it. But my advice to companies is always to stick with what you do best. So this begs the question, uh, what models are going to work for new entrants in the electric vehicle space? We saw this huge new deal between Rivian and Amazon for, what was it, 100,000 electric yeah. delivery vans? Crazy. Um, Rivian has been around for a while. It's not like it's, it's a startup company, but it hasn't been around that long, probably about as long as Tesla, right? Um, what is a, the success of a company like Rivian or on the bus side like Proterra? Tell us about the path to market for electric transportation entrance. Jigger. Well, remember, R Rivian also got money from Ford and from Cox Automotive. And so Rivian is a platform play. So as much as people want to compare Rivian to Tesla, and they basically say, you know, here's what Rivian's truck might look like, because there's some nice artist renderings. Um, in general, what Rivian is saying is we'll supply all the guts to a truck, because what you find is the guts for like Volvo, VW, etc., use about 30% more electricity per mile than a Tesla does, right? And so that's just not going to work long term. Like it has to be better technology. So Rivian saying we have better technology. And then you tell us what format to put it in. So Amazon will say, we want to put it into this delivery truck that looks like a Dodge Sprinter van or like looks like a UPS truck or whatever it is that they want. And they're going to use Rivian's backbone to put in there. Ford is doing the same, right? So the Ford F-150 electric truck will be done on Rivian's platform, but the rest of it will be done by Ford, right? And so so Rivian is becoming this platform play for anyone who has, you know, mild, um, you know, volume. Uh, they can, you know, access the platform and all the technology and the software and all the integration that, that Catherine was mentioning. Yeah, and I don't think it's crazy at all that Amazon wants 100,000 of these delivery vans. I mean, Amazon is a logistics company, and they need more than anything good logistics uh, services and platforms. And this this deal makes all kinds of sense to me. Yeah, Amazon's got this business where they have a lot of local contractors doing the driving and package delivery now. And there's this guy who drives around my neighborhood who's got like his busted up white van. He's clearly been in like multiple accidents. <laughs> I'm like, man, that that guy needs a Rivian. Oh, well, <laughs> my God. It's yeah. Well, it's either that or drones. So which would you prefer? Yeah, I, I, I still want the, the, the sketchy human beings on their own <laughs> rather than drones coming to my doorstep. 
Two-sided solar panels, known as bifacial panels, have become the hot new thing in the PV industry. It's a technology that people have been talking about for a couple of years, but adoption is starting to hit a critical mass. Our crack researchers at Wood Mackenzie Power and Renewables show that bifacial modules could make up anywhere between 30 and 50 percent of module shipments in three years. So why are we talking about them? Well, they're very cool. They're a growing technology, but also they're in the news. The Trump administration just lifted a tariff exemption on them. And so while interest explodes, the tech is facing some new short-term hurdles in the U.S. Uh, Before we get into the conversation, as a companion piece to this topic, read Emma Faringer Merchant's piece on bifacial and its growth in the industry um, if you aren't a subscriber to GTM Squared, go do that and read that piece. It's um, a very comprehensive accounting of where bifacial panels stand and then also the short-term impact of these tariffs. So, Jigger, over to you. What exactly are bifacial solar panels? What's their benefit? And why are, you know, why are they getting so much traction now? So in its simplest understanding, bifacial panels just generates power from both sides of the module. Um, and, you know, like there are companies like Sunpreme, um, there were these uh, H- HTC panels, um, you know, from the past, and they were always so expensive. And the other biggest problem with bifacials in the past was that you had to like clip them from the sides because you needed to make sure that you didn't have shading underneath. And so it was just always this fascination, like building integrated photovoltaics or you know, or other types of uh, sort of things that come through. But in recent years, pretty much every major manufacturer of solar panels, particularly in China, has had a bifacial line. And so there's been a mainstreaming of bifacial that probably happened about two years ago in small quantities, but two years ago. And then I think what's occurred is as solar margins have gotten thinner and thinner and thinner, People have started to say, hey, wait a second, you know, like, are we going to get substantial amounts of production on the underside of these modules? Does it make sense to start looking at them again? And so what's the yield improvement with these panels? So that's been the hardest thing. And that's why Generate, we've we've done some bifacial panel installations already, mainly on rooftop systems where we have reflective coatings on roofs that really enhance the solar production. But when you hire an independent engineer... They're really all over the map. Most of the data shows 3 4 5% increase, which is just really small. But the promise that everyone keeps claiming is that they're going to be 10 to 12% extra production. And we just haven't seen that borne out in the data. But there does seem to be an aspiration to get to that level. 5% increase, that seems like pretty substantial to me. Yeah, but remember, it costs more to install these, right? Because you can't like you don't get that 5% increase if you use standard racking solutions where all you have is shade underneath the panels. And so you basically have to create a more ideal racking system that allows for more reflection up uh, to the backside of the panels. Okay, so they cost more and they're about to cost a little bit more because there are going to be new tariffs on imported bifacial panels. They were exempt from the tariffs in the first place. Now they're not as of this month. Catherine, why were they exempt? And why is the exemption being lifted? Yeah, 
I think they were exempt originally, and there's still some other technologies like the cells that don't have bus bars or grid lines that are still exempt from the tariffs because they were considered really niche and it wasn't a huge market. And I think as that market has increased, um, there have there's been global production increasing, and as a result, um, the U.S. Trade Representative along with the secretaries of energy and commerce who have input into this process decided uh, four months after exempting them that they were going to reinstate the tariffs. And that's 25% um, over four years, but they stepped down 5% a year. So in 2020, they immediately go down to 20%. Um, And remember, there's a midterm review of all the tariffs coming up in February of 2020, where they'll take a look at all of them. But I think they just didn't think it was a real market. And when the market started increasing, as Jigger said, people started looking at them more seriously. They realized, oh, maybe um, the US doesn't have an advantage anymore, and we should start uh, putting tariffs on them. Still, we're going to see growth of adoption of bifacial panels. So would McKenzie Power and Renewables, our folks over here, they put together a recent report on the emergence of this technology. And we'll probably see module shipments make up 30% of products shipped to the U.S. in 2022, even under a scenario in which, you know, the the tariffs hit these these panels. Uh, If uptake increases under a high uptake scenario, they could make up 50% of U.S. demand by that year. So a short-term hit, but still the the, the march continues. Yeah, look, I think that people are going to continue to innovate in this space. So the solar industry has a long history of adopting technologies really quickly, like perk cells and others, where you know everything looks really far away, and then one day everyone decides that they're going to install the specialty equipment to make it happen, and you know, huge market share swings occur. So I, I don't, I don't think this will be any different. I think the the big challenge with bifacial though is it does require optimization across the entire balance of systems supply chain. So it's not just the module that needs to be improved. It's also saying for rooftops, well, you have to, you know, paint the roof a reflective coating at the same time. And that's part of the cost of installing solar now because that reflective coating actually gets paid for by having the bifacial panels. And so I think that there's just a level of complexity, which is not yet been really figured out by all the solar installers. And I would say even last year, I think a lot of the finance companies were afraid of bifacial panels. That has completely melted away this year. Pretty much all the finance companies are now fully comfortable with bifacial. But, you know, like anything in the solar industry, it's going to be fits and starts and then it'll become commonplace. Okay, well, let's close it there and provide our free electrons to uh, wrap up the show. Catherine, what do you got this week? Check your headlights, y'all. We're going into the wonk tunnel. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Integrated resource planning. Let's talk about regulation for just a minute here. No, this is good. This is good. I'm burning up over here. (laughs) I spent three days last week in Columbus with 16 states, um, regulatory and energy official. So it's the, so NARUC and NASIO. So NARUC, just for folks who don't know, this is the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners. And NASIO is the National Association of State Energy Officials. So the regular regulatory commissioners, some of them are elected, some of them are appointed. There, there are a whole host of different kind of scenarios. And of course, they regulate different types of utilities too. Some are, you know, have retail competition and some of them are fully integrated. So there are a variety of different types of commissions. And there's 
are 16 that are participating of all types in this process. And then the state energy officials are the state energy offices that are under generally um, the governor's office. It's all part of whatever the governor's doing. And what they're doing is they have a task force for comprehensive planning, and they're trying to figure out how do we do utility planning in a way that really makes sure that the customer side, the distribution side, is fully incorporated into even the way we think about transmission and generation. So make it much more holistic, make sure the models are right, make sure that stakeholders can participate. So I was part of that as a stakeholder. And it was really, really incredible because utility commissions are already starting to change just based on being part of this conversation. Um, there was a really good piece that Joe Daniel, who was also there, he's with UCS, he did a really good piece on why state regulators are rejecting utility resource plans. And, and a bunch of states have rejected plans. And this is because they're using like outdated modeling tools. Their things are completely opaque. Nobody can see what's going on. They don't consider stakeholder comments. They don't consider state law. They're just all kinds of things utilities try to do to make sure that they make money and um, that they keep everything away from any kind of process that's open. And regulators are starting to push back in a big way. And it's really interesting to see states that are changing, even though the task force and all this like white whiteboarding we were doing, which, you know, can be pretty torturous, um, but was was actually fun for me. Um, even just the the process itself, not the end of the process, because they're going to come up with best practices at the end of this process that says, hey, regulators for all the other states, because we're only 16 of them, but we represent all the different types. All of you guys um, can take these best practices and do planning much smarter that will benefit everybody in your jurisdiction. And they're starting to change now just by virtue of going through the process. And last night, Jigger and I just got a note from Michigan that today the governor of Michigan is announcing Michigan Power Grid, which is this multi-year effort that the state Department of Environment and the Regulatory Commission are working together on this energy transition to make sure customers can engage, that new technologies can be installed, that um, that they can reduce waste, and a host of other benefits. But Michigan is also part of this task force, and they are moving forward apace. So it's pretty exciting for someone who works with commissions all the time. Jigger, what you got for a free electron? Are you gonna are you gonna hit the wonk as well? Well, you know. I- I'm, hit a wonk. I'm, I'm going to remind ourselves about um, something that the CEO of Shell said this week. He uh, he said that uh, there's no choice but to invest in oil, um, that he just sees abundant opportunities to make oil from oil and gas in coming decades, even as investors and governments increase pressure on energy companies over climate change. So it's just it's one of those things that. You know, I had a couple of back channels with some of my buddies over at Shell, and they're like, this is just, you know, subterfuge. We're just trying to make sure that the other oil companies don't take over the good investments we want to make. And I was like, ah, you know, like it's just so damn predictable, right? That you want all this greenwashing, but in the end, even though you've un- you've underperformed, right? I mean, the return on equity for Shell has been less than 12% which is really terrible rate of return on the risks that they're taking. And um, and we're making far higher returns in the clean energy sector. But, you know, you can't stop these folks from going back to basics. If I were the CEO of Shell or another one of these oil majors, I wouldn't be that scared yet of, you know, EVs or renewable electricity. I'd be more scared of the fact that polling shows people really love and support the idea 
of legally holding these oil companies accountable for their for their role in climate change or the fact that you have all these activist investors that are putting pressure on these companies for a not informing them of their you know climate risks and you know b not accepting those risks so I, I don't know. It just feels like they're so disconnected from the fact that there's a lot of real pressure to for for some kind of like legal remedy when it comes to climate action. In the absence of policy, like the courts and the lawyers may ultimately start to have an impact. Well, it's 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 a multitude of things. I think you're absolutely right. But the other thing is like Daimler Benz has been investing continuously since 1887 in R&D for internal combustion engines, right? And in September of this year, they announced that they are spending $0 moving forward on internal combustion engines, zero R&D dollars, because they don't see any future where those dollars will turn into profits for them. And so they're moving 100% of their R&D budget over to electric. And so when that occurs, you've hit the tipping point. And so for Shell to not hear that tipping point and for it not to reverberate in their brains at a point where they're like, wow, we have to do the same thing, is pretty damn outrageous. Well, um, over in the Bronx, there's a new campaign to get clean heating and cooling systems in multifamily housing, um, in underserved communities, often communities of color. And it's being run by, uh, I mean, it was planned by NYSERDA, and it's run by this company called Block Power, which is a New York-based company uh, founded by uh, a guy named uh, Donnell Baird, who is an entrepreneur who created this public benefit corporation to bring energy efficiency and distributed energy to um, buildings and communities that don't often get access to it. Um, uh, so th- I thought this program was pretty cool because they're focusing not on like solar or energy efficiency, but they're focusing on heat pumps and increasingly public policy and the companies that are adopting or helping adopt that public policy are focusing on heat pumps as well. So uh, I thought that was an interesting program. And I also brought it up because Donnell is going to be one of our guests on the new season of Illuminators, this show that you've heard me talk about. And we're going to be interviewing you know people who have really like interesting entrepreneurial backgrounds are you know starting companies and facing difficulties um have seen their companies fail or succeed and so we've got a really great lineup of uh folks for that season and we're going to be rolling out um a bunch of episodes over the fall and into next year so go check out the uh second season of illuminators you can go subscribe to that and we'll have episodes dropping soon and Donnell will be talking about his role in the Obama administration and the lessons they learned on the failure of green jobs programs how he's applying that to you know, building a company like Block Power and helping execute public policy. Uh, we're going to have like people like Michael Liebrich, uh, Tim Healy, the founder of Enernock. Uh, we're working on a bunch of other really high profile folks. So check it out. We're having a lot of fun with it already. It's a great show. I really like that podcast, Stephen. And I can't wait to hear that one with Donnell. Thanks. Time to close up shop. That is our show for the week. Before you head off to do your next thing, can you just do us a favor and take the survey that is linked in our show notes? It's a huge help. You'll be qualifying for swag, too, if you want. It's an anonymous survey, but if you want to provide your email, you can get some Energy Gang or Interchange swag. Um, 
if you get value out of this show, please send it to someone else in your life who would get as much value out of it as well. You can also holler at us on social media, and perhaps we'll echo your sentiment with a retweet. My co-hosts are Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. The show is produced and edited by me and Daniel Waldorf. We are a co-production of Green Tech Media and Postscript Audio. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Music